Hey, we got stuff with Steve, and guess what? I'm Steve, and I'm here with Nick, and we're going to talk about a book that I just read called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Doesn't that sound like exciting reading, Nick? Yeah, that sounds like the kind of historical stuff that you just sit by the fire and have your overcoat on to. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I know people make fun of me for whatever. I try to read everything, but but this is by Mark Knoll, and this Mark Knoll was a historian at Wheaton College, and then went on to to the Smithsonian, where he was a, I guess, in-house resident scholar there. And then he went on from there to Notre Dame, where he's a historical scholar as well. So he wrote this book called a The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. In the first chapter, he outlines how in one city, and he quotes the sermon, how a pastor preached against slavery in 1860, and then on the other side of the city, a different pastor preached that slavery was A-OK in the Bible. So the question, as I'm reading these things, is how did that happen? What's going on here? Help me understand why one church on one side of the town is 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 abolitionist, that to abolish slavery is what that means. And the other, you know, maybe in the same town, and he was quoting churches in Philadelphia in the north, so it wasn't in the south, that were um, on the other side. So how do those things happen. And, and in one sense, it drives the question is how do we interpret the Bible and what's our filter for that? Well, because of the Civil War, actually, we have different denominations in the United States like Southern Baptists and others were created basically because there were deep divides over the slavery issue. And it was you know, it's well documented other places. But what I want to talk about just for a few minutes here is that how did, how did this happen in interpreting the Bible? So there are passages in the New Testament, like in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, slaves obey your masters, right, chapter 6, actually, and of Ephesians, and in other places that talks about, you know, mentioned slaves. And so people would, pastors or church leaders or people would jump on that and say, see, the Bible supports slavery, and it's okay to own slaves. And the argument went something like this, it's in the Bible— we believe the Bible, and if you don't believe this, you don't believe in the Bible. So they made it. They made the argument about inerrancy at that point. Hey, the Bible's true, and if you don't buy into this, you are rejecting the Bible, you're rejecting Jesus, and that's just a bad argument in, in so many ways. So how some uh, theologians or scholars or pastors of the day fought against that was to point out that many of these passages had nothing to do with Christians owning slaves and that the context of the Bible needed to be taken into account. So let me give you um, let me give you an example of that. So in Ephesians chapter 6, for instance, it says, slaves obey your master. So, so uh, in, when that was written in the first century by Paul to the church at Ephesus, Paul was in, in one sense telling, uh, making the point that we need to be submissive to authority, whether it's uh, in the home or children obeying your parents. And in the Roman Empire, people, I would, uh, reports I've read is that something like 40 million slaves were, people were slaves during the Roman Empire. And so, and so in one sense, Paul. Paul is saying that slavery, he's not saying slavery is okay. He's telling people how to respond at that current time, at that very moment in 55 AD in the church in Ephesus. He said, slaves, hey, you need to obey your masters. Uh, 
uh, right now. Slavery was different in the Roman Empire than in America, but that doesn't mean that slavery was right in the Roman Empire. What's different about U.S. slavery was that it was purely race-based and had awful, awful results. So I want to just mention some things that I read in this book, and I marked them so I wouldn't lose my place. But there were strong people who were abolitionists who made great arguments against people who were making the argument that slavery was allowed in the Bible. Now, first off, there was this, and Nick mentioned it to me, erroneous thing that that the sins of Cain um, were marked out on black people. That is just totally wrong. If you want a book that talks a lot about that, it's Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans, and he dispels that myth. And maybe someday in the future we'll go over that as well. One of the arguments that people made for slavery during the 1860s was that black people were inferior to white people. And so they would enslave them. And that comes down to the Dred Scott decision, which I believe was in 1858, which is the Supreme Court decision that said a black person was three-fifths the equivalent of a white person. And that was eventually overturned a couple years later. But what you can gather from this is this. Let's just say, for instance, hypothetically speaking, I'm superior to Nick. Oh, no, let's do it the other way. Nick is superior to me. Therefore, Nick should be able to enslave me. Right. And so that argument was made over and over again in America. And that was a compelling argument that just to say that somebody's inferior, then why don't those who are superior just enslave everybody who's inferior? And who gets to decide who's inferior and superior and all kinds of questions? But then that meant that whites could enslave whites. And that argument began to crush some of these uh, pro-slavery movements as well. So evangelical believers and churches began to vigorously oppose um, vigorously oppose slavery. So one of the ways that people who were pro-slavery in churches began to reason was simply this. First, they'd open the scriptures and read a passage from the Bible that talked about someone owning a slave. And then they would say, decide for yourself, what do these passages mean? The plain meaning is that people can own slaves. And then they would say, don't wait for a pastor or somebody else to tell you what's true. Just read it for yourself. Well, what that discounts is what we call hermeneutics. How do I interpret the Bible? So some of the slavery in the Old Testament that would be referred to, we have to remember Israel was a theocracy. It it pertained to the entire nation as well, very different circumstance. And so slavery, uh, as opposed in the Civil War, one of the things that was the driving conscience of the church was that uh, whether you're black, white, whatever, whatever, you're made in the image of God. And there is no inferiority or anything the such as well. So this issue began to be, to be, Obviously, it became the Civil War, very destructive for a five-year Civil War. But after the Civil War, it, a couple issues became to the forefront. That was uh, racism in, in all kinds of forms in the, late, uh, in the late 1800s, and then poverty. Poverty was an incredibly uh, difficult issue at the time as well. And so... Churches began to address those issues and 
began to build, uh, I would say, coalitions to fight poverty, to fight racism. But unfortunately, there were others who were fighting for slavery, like the KKK. So we had this mixed bag going on in the United States, but churches after the Civil War began to have a change in thinking about um, about racism. It wasn't perfect, but it began to change. And one of the reasons was that people began to say, hey, Scripture is not telling us to own slaves. It's just reporting on what happened. So we have this idea when it comes to interpreting the Bible called hermeneutics, which I mentioned earlier, and let me say it this way. Sometimes Scripture tells us what happened, but it's not telling us to do something. That's called prescriptive. Scripture's not prescribing us to do something. It's merely reporting what was going on at the time. So let me give you a real simple illustration of that because this sounds confusing. In in the book of Acts, sometimes they had church at night. Should we have church at night today? It's not telling us to have church at nighttime. It's just merely telling us they happen to have church at night. So it's not prescribing or commanding us to do something today. It's just merely reporting on what happened. And that's a hermeneutic principle that will save you from making terrible mistakes about slavery about other issues. Hey, is the Bible telling me to do something here, or is it merely informing me on what happened at that very moment that the Scripture was written? So with that in mind, it's helpful to apply that to uh, or to think about this slavery issue. And after the Civil War, churches were able to hone in on their hermeneutics and clarify and clarify how do we interpret the Bible, so that things like this wouldn't happen again in uh, in churches where we would have uh, terrible moral moral evil like like slavery or racism occurring in our churches as well. So, Steve, I actually wanted to butt in for a second. Yep, please do. In talking about the background and the context biblically, I'm kind of thinking of three different contexts that being a slave or becoming a slave could come about. And you can add or correct if my memory doesn't serve me right. But I'm thinking the first one is a product of war. So you lose a war, your people become enslaved to the people who won the war. True. And then the second one I'm thinking of is if you were poor or if you didn't have enough resources, you would go to maybe a neighbor of yours or someone who is well off and say, hey, I will become essentially your indentured servant. Correct. But that basically just means a slave. Mm-hmm. And then the third one would be um, the one, what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about this is the nation of Israel under the rule of Egypt. And I'm not sure the hi- historically if that came about because of war or if they just became oppressed. Yeah. Good point. Hey, I think you're spot on that in history, people could become slaves by, uh, hey, they lost the war. Or they owed somebody money, indentured servant. And the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people under Joseph, I'm preaching on Joseph Sunday mornings, fresh in my mind, you know, they end up there and it was out of fear, I would say. The Egyptians feared this vast number of people who were different than them, so they enslaved them. And you can probably see that in um, the United States in some ways, historically, that fear drove uh 
slavery and racism. Yeah. So I think I think there's some accuracy in that. And I think that also what you just mentioned, I think we mentioned some of those things on a previous podcast, but I think that that when we look at scripture, we need to remember that sometimes when slavery is talked about, it's the indentured servant kind of thing. That's why they had their year of jubilee and other things that would take away debt from people so they could live free. Right? So but that wasn't always the case. So the Israelites, they weren't necessarily conquered. They were already there living. Then they grew to a sizable community, upwards of 2 million people by the time Moses is on the scene. And so they become enslaved. So I think it was a fear factor. The other thing Egyptian history-wise is that Jewish people are Semitic people, and there's strong evidence that before the time of Moses came on the scene that a different Semitic group of people came to Egypt and ruled Egypt for well over 100 years. So there's this guilt by association. Hey, those other Semitic people took over our country. We don't want this group of Semitic people, these Jews, to take over our country. So we'll enslave them. That's a little bit of a historical fact people aren't aware of. That's one of the reasons that the Jews became enslaved. And actually, when you read uh, sermons from black history of the church, the ones that I've read, they often go to this motif of the Jews being freed from the slavery of Egypt. It's predominant in in preaching in African-American churches at the time. They really identify, and it makes a lot of sense, right, to identify with those being liberated. Yeah. And then also just talking about interpretation and the importance of hermeneutics and seeing what's prescriptive and not, I think that's kind of interesting just as history has gone on, as the church has grown and developed, there's so many instances of mistakes or like misinterpretations or just things that maybe some people take too literally. Um, And that could be like maybe a covenant that God made with people back in the Bible that is no longer necessarily in place. So something like circumcision, we're not Mm -hmm. necessarily called to that as Christians or something like, um, I can't think of the specific passage, but there's some, I heard of some misinterpretation that men having long hair was wrong (laughs) and that that was unholy. Right. So it's just funny to think about those things. And then when it comes to the issue of slavery, which seems, which to us today seems like such a clear way over the line issue. That is the, mm-hmm. There should not be um, a lack of clarity in that, that all humans are created equal and loved by God and made in his image. Yeah. So it makes me curious about moving forward if we're going to look back maybe a decade from now and think, oh, wow, what are we misinterpreting right now? Or what did we have I, wrong? I That's one of... I think that's a great question because I think in a hundred years people look back at you and me and go, "What were they thinking? That was terrible what they did or what they thought or what they didn't do, whatever the case is." So history will be the judge of that. When you mentioned long hair, you made me think about this. There's some passages in the, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that you shouldn't get a tattoo. It's evil to get a tattoo. I don't have any tattoos. Nick, do you have any tattoos? I'm, I'm going to let you find out about that, Steve. Oh, no. That, don't do that. So, so, but the thing of it is that that's in the context of the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law was a system. 
because the Israelites left Egypt. They didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to love God and worship him. So God says, well, you're going to do it this way. It was never meant to be permanent. It was temporary. And the reason not to get the tattoo for that person was because those Baal worshipers who sacrificed babies at an altar were doing it. So don't be like them. Don't try to – don't be associated with that moral evil. So for tattoos today, I don't think that's the issue at all. So I don't think that applies, in other words. I say that all the time as a pastor. As a pastor, people will take Scripture out of its context and apply it in a way that it was never intended to be applied. So application is the question. Also, I'll let you know, I I don't have a a tattoo. Oh, okay. I've done some temporary ones that are pretty fun, though. Okay, great. Yeah, I don't have any tats. Maybe someday. I doubt it. I'm too much of a tightwad. I won't spend any money on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, this book that I just read uh, a few months ago, Mark Knoll, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. If you're a history buff and you think, hey, that sounded kind of interesting, then I – I uh, recommend the book. I think it will be a great reading, and you can wrestle with some of these questions. Why did one church preach abolition and another church was pro-slavery? And it comes down to uh, probably some fear issues and wanting to hang on to their economic base, but also a misinterpretation approach, a misapproach uh, to Scripture between descriptive hermeneutics and prescriptive. Is it describing what happened or is it prescribing what we should do? And that's an important issue. It's stuff with Steve, and I'm glad you're listening today.